cannot tell you how much I don't want to talk about this election, but it was the biggest story of the week. There are some important things that came out of it, so we're going to do that for most of today's Corey Act show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening, and I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. I tend to even pride myself on being the guy who talks about the stuff that no one else is talking about, that we don't get dragged around by the nose, by the news cycle, whatever's on talk radio, whatever's on the cable news stations. But elections are, I guess, different. They have their own significance. And so where I tend to like to be the guy who goes off the beaten path, let's spend some time on election 2018, what we can learn from it, and where we are heading. But first, my name is Corey Truax. We are dedicated to smarter, better, talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. Today, it just happens to be quite focused on election outcomes. I am also the pastor for teaching at Beechwood Church. You can join Beechwood Church any given Sunday morning at 1030. We meet at Greenville High School in downtown Greenville. You are invited cordially so to Beechwood Church, downtown Greenville at Greenville High School, 1030 Sunday mornings. Now, here we go. Before we get into the facts, I am going to do that thing I do. I am going to remind you that what happened on Tuesday is not nearly as important as everyone made it seem. It was not nearly as important as some folks in your social media feeds say it was. Elections are important. Government and politics are important. They're a part of life. They're, they shouldn't be, uh, and the outcome of elections shouldn't be a top five thing that concerns you. That's actually the first thing I want you to take out of this election. This shouldn't matter so much. It should tell us something about our, not idolatries necessarily, but how our government has gotten out of control that we think it matters so much. I think it matters for two bad reasons to people. So one is that the government does too much. The federal government, that which happens in D.C., affects too many people And that's what we should all agree on and try to decentralize it so that we don't all freak out so much about election outcomes. We freak out about who wins Senate elections in other states because we're worried about how that might affect us here and there probably shouldn't be a government that can affect that many people at the same time. And so this should incentivize us to be people who are trying to decentralize power out of D.C. It would be a good thing for you. If you're in South Carolina listening to me, it would be a good thing for you if Columbia the capital of our state, was more important than what was happening in D.C. If you're in North Carolina listening to me, it would be better for you if you cared a lot more what was going on in Raleigh than what was happening in Washington, D.C. It's just a fact. It it would be better. The other reason it's, it's bad that so many people care about this too much is that really the what's happened with Republicans and Democrats is that those are actually just the largest churches in America. As we lost our religiosity, as we've become a less faithful people, people had to fill in that gap. What used to be filled in by religious organizations and finding meaning in those communities and changing society and changing the world around you through a religious means, as we became less religious, the human heart that does want to seem like it's affecting the outcomes of things, the human heart that wants to feel significant 
in the world had to find vehicles by which to do that. And so folks do have idols. They have Republicans and Democrats, their political parties, their elections that have become their church. What used to fill that void was churches, and now what's filling that void for a lot of people are the two largest churches in America, and that is Republicans and Democrats. And it should not be that way. This shouldn't matter as much as it does. It should matter. Governments are important. Elections are important. But not the breathless hyperventilation that we see around election results. Because I tell you this, let's all be realistic. In uh, Let's do this in three ways. I hate doing stuff on the fly. I feel like I'm always going to make a mistake, but here we go. Barack Obama. January 19th, 2009, he wasn't president. January 20th at noon on 2009, he became president. Did, did really anything change for you January 21st? I mean, did it really? Over those eight years, did some things change? Yeah, it was important. Some important stuff happened. It really did. But it was your life all that different five years later, six years later, and then eight years later when he was finished? Not, not really. Most of your day-to-day with your family, your job, managing your life and your household, most of that basically stayed the same. Donald Trump was not president January 19th, 2017, and then he was on the 20th. It, have things changed? Yeah, you know, economically, there's some change. That's all right. But did your real, did your day-to-day life actually change? And if it did for either one of those people, that's probably your fault. You are too emotionally affected by either one of those outcomes. And you were too emotionally affected by either one of those personalities. So the the lesson here is, is your life going to be all that much different when Nancy Pelosi is speaker again in January? Not really. You're still going to have the same concerns about your retirement and how you pay for health care. You're going to still wonder when the next raise is coming. You're still going to like your job or not like your job and start looking for a new one. You're going to be in that same relationship or not in it. You're going to be uh, in that same church or you're not. Like these are, these are the things that make up real life. Real life isn't what happens on election days. Real life is what happens in between them. And so c- focus on that. Focus on what happens the other days besides this these election days. Prioritize the personal prioritize your family, prioritize your friendships, prioritize your church, prioritize your local community, go coach a little league team, go find whatever civic organization is actually going to do a a Saturday to to clean up some highway or something, go join something, do something, that is your actual civic duty. Your civic duty cannot possibly be that every two years you show up to click a box with your finger on a screen, your your civic duty needs to be the other 364 days per year where you're actually doing something. So prioritize the personal, prioritize the local, recognize this shouldn't all matter so much. And then, so that's what we should prioritize personally. But then going back, to circle back to where we started, we should also prioritize something nationally. We should have, as one of our outcome desires, is not to get to get power so we can force other people to do what we want. We need to really be trying to figure out how to decentralize power so that it doesn't really matter so much who the president is and who Congress who the Congress people are because they can't affect us so much. That should be our goal. So first, before we get into all the facts and what's going on, let's at least fix our hearts for a minute. Whoever wins the speakership 
Jesus is still ruling everything. Whoever is president, Jesus is still in charge. Okay, this is I would I would remind all of my evangelical Trump people who screamed at me for a year going through that primary. Well, God can use anybody. God can ordain and use anybody. Well, you know what? He can use Nancy Pelosi then. Okay, all right. Use your logic. Use your reason. If you were saying that, well. God wants Donald Trump to be president because he won. All right, well, God wants Nancy Pelosi to be speaker, okay? That's how sovereignty works. That, if this is your theology, then this is this is the, the route that we're on right now, and that's okay. God knows what he's doing. Everybody calm down. That's the first thing. Calm down and focus on your personal local life and less on these big national things. Now, to the facts of the case. I got a message from an old college friend, Kelly, who, I wonder if I can pull up that message. She said something like, you know, I, I miss the politically active Corey, the political, oh yeah, political junkie. She called me political junkie, Corey. And, uh, and it, it was all in good nature, but that's what um, that's what she was saying, is you used to be so excited about, that's just, I found it. She says, you used to be so excited about politics, you seem way less enthusiastic now, you know, I miss that uh, that that Corey that was really into these things, and I guess you noticed with these elections, I've just I have grown more and more apathetic to election outcomes because I'm not under any illusions anymore. I'm I'm not in. She said I was enthralled with those things. Uh, I used to be. I just recognize more and more it doesn't. I mean, it matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It just matters a lot less than I once thought. I am. I, I tell you where I am. Politically, I just feel like there's there's no one who represents me. I don't have a team to cheer for, and teams are really they're not good. Uh, team when you turn politics into team sports, it's bad. You know, I, I had an interaction with somebody on uh, on the internet well, as people do now because no one interacts face to face who was treating this election like sports. I can't wait till my team wins so the other team can feel bad about themselves. Right? That's an immature attitude between Clemson and South Carolina fans. That's an immature attitude in between Michigan and Ohio State fans. Let's take our politics up above college sports, okay? That would be really good. That would be better for all of us. But I, as I do look out on the political landscape, there's like four people. I mean that. I think four people maybe in Congress, maybe it would, it would broaden itself if you include some governors, that actually think what I think. The, there's not, there's no real coalition for my ideology, and so what is there to be excited about for people like me? I mean, I'm not entertained by it. Politics is not entertaining, and so yeah, I just I care a lot less, and so I can even hear it in my own voice the disinterest I have in giving you these results and some thoughts. But there, it's got some importance, not ultimate importance. So here we go. The big theme to me from Tuesday's elections. Everybody's got something good, to, something good to feel about, something to feel, yeah, to feel good about, and everyone has something to feel bad about. It's a very, very mixed bag. There was no real blue wave. There was no red wall, as people were saying. These, this 26 or 27 seats that Democrats pick up, maybe it ended up being 30, is right about the average. They basically did the average thing. On average, if a president gets elected, the next time there's a midterm election, the president is going to lose about 30 seats. That's super normal. And so a normal thing happened, an average thing happened. And so uh, everyone can feel really, I mean, there, there shouldn't be a ton of elation or disappointment. There's things to, good feel, things to feel good about, things to feel bad about. I'll start 
with Republicans. Republicans should feel good about Florida. As I'm, as I'm talking to you, the governor's race has been called, the Senate race looks like it's going to be called soon for the Republican, an unexpected win in, in Florida. I didn't think Republicans were going to win either of those races, the Florida, or, uh, the governor's race or the Senate race. They should feel really good because if, if you care about Republicans winning national elections, presidential elections, Florida is a really important state to maintain uh, as, as part of the electoral college math. So they should feel really good about Florida. Republicans should be, feel really good about Ohio. I, there was no one thinking Republicans was gonna, were going to flip the Ohio governors from, from Democrat to Republican, but they did. And so they should feel really good about that. They should feel really good about the Senate, that they were able to pick up that seat in Florida, pick up that seat in Missouri, pick up a seat, I think it was in North Dakota and Indiana. Yeah, they, they won four Democratic seats. And you say the, the stuff you feel bad about. Yeah, they lost one in Nevada. But overall, I mean, expanding your majority, that's good. There's a bunch of stuff for Republicans to look out and go, great, man. We, Ohio State, Ohio is a, a swing state, and we, we won the governorship there. I, by we, I'm speaking as them. I don't consider myself a Republican. I never use that pronoun when I talk about Republicans. But they can be saying, we won two big races in Florida, a big race in Ohio, these very important swing states. Like, we, we got something going there, expanded in uh, expanded ourselves in the Senate, ac- across the map, won back some states we should have had. I think Republicans can feel really good about North Carolina. Th- those congressional forces that actually had South Carolina sending an extra Democrat to Congress with the Charleston area electing a Democrat, it didn't hit North Carolina. Uh, that's a thing I know Republicans in, electoral, in the electoral world that are kind of in the election industry they're worried about North Carolina as as becoming more of a swing state. Well, around that Charlotte area where all these there's a lot of liberals and Democrats moving into Charlotte to one of the fastest growing areas. I'm actually talking to you right now as I record the podcast from the Charlotte area. No Democrats picked picked off Republican seats. They should feel really good about that. They should also feel good about Georgia. Stacey Abrams outspent the Republican like crazy. She was a media darling and it ended up being a media creation. I guess a little bit closer in the end than you would have thought, but Republicans have a lot to feel good about in these results. When we come back from this break, I will tell you what Democrats have to feel good about, maybe some things they should be disappointed in, and then we'll start interpreting some of this data and see what's coming next. We will do that when we come back for the remainder of the Corey Act Show. the Corey Truax Show as we recap Tuesday's elections. Maybe you can tell I'm so excited about it because I like politics so much. I'm such a huge fan of Republicans and or Democrats. I just love talking about how their elections went. Uh, find the show any, anywhere you want on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. You can connect to the show and then get it on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Anchor. It's plenty of places and I am always appreciative when appreciative when you listen. It, it would be highly uh, approved of. I would be highly appreciative. If you would rate the show wherever you listen, just find a way to like the show, share it on social media if, you, if you're inclined to do that. But at least like, rate, give us a review. It always helps other people find it as well. So what I've given you thus far is Republicans, excuse me, not Republicans, for everybody. This shouldn't matter as much as it does. It matters. It should just matter less to you what happens in elections. And Republicans have a lot to feel good about from this election. Here's some things Democrats have to feel good about from this election as well. Midterms have been rough on them. 2010, 2014 were just disasters. They had a, they had some things to celebrate. For example, they won the House of Representatives. 
Nancy Pelosi, if unless anybody challenges her successfully, she will be Speaker of the House probably one more time. Uh, actually, I'm hearing from Democrat circles that she wants this for just one more term, and she actually thinks she's thinking about retiring uh, and having that new blood come in. But you're likely to see her take over. Uh, so that is a good thing for them. They can feel good about that. They won state seven state legislative chambers. This is a big deal going towards 2020. Stick with me for a second. This is not a tangent. This is very important. I again say the most important election of my lifetime was 2010. When the Affordable Care Act passed, it was very unpopular, and it led to a gigantic Republican wave. It was 66 seats in the House for Republicans. They took over the House. But the bigger part was they took a lot of state legislatures. They started. They became the, the ruling party in North Carolina, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, and 2010 was important because that was the year of the census, and so it was Republican majorities that redrew maps. Every 10 years, we redraw these district maps, and it was Republican majorities that got to do it or appoint the people that got to do it. The Democrats took back seven legislative chambers. That They could feel good about that because we're coming up to 2020. we got to do it again. we got to have another census, and then the state legislative chambers get to appoint the people or get to directly draw the maps. And so Republicans would, would love to have those back, I'm sure. It's a disappointment to Republicans to have lost those. But Democrats should feel good about it. You got those seven legislative chambers. The pickup of a seat in Nevada. I, I do wonder if the president's anti-caravan stuff hurt him because it's a heavily Hispanic state. But I didn't, I didn't expect him to win any Republican Senate seats. That was a little bit out of the realm of possibility, in my opinion, going into the night. Uh, but they picked one off, and then something they should feel really good about. Feel really good about Wisconsin. Scott Walker started a, as a fairly popular governor there. This would have been, I think he, because he won his first round, then he was recalled, and then I think he won a re-election. I think this was like his fourth election. So he had won statewide quite a bit. Wisconsin's also very important to Democrats nationally as part of their electoral college strategy. So getting back to the Midwest, where they were able to win uh, that seat. So Democrats have a lot to feel good about, too. Everybody had something to celebrate on that Tuesday night. You would hope that would bring the country into some unity, where everyone could just go, hey, yeah, good for you guys. Yeah, good for you guys, too. Good game, everybody. And go back to their corners. But no, it just led to us all hating each other some more. So here's some interpretations. So that's the facts, the case. That's what happened on Tuesday. Everyone has something to feel good about. So what does it all mean? I have some consequences for you. For Democrats, here's something they should take away. Your super left people cannot win. Not in anywhere but, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She won, I think, running basically unopposed. There might have been a Republican in that race, but I'm not sure. She is an insane left-winger who doesn't know anything. She's just She's a really low IQ person. But she's running in the Bronx. Of course she won. Yeah, she's running in New York City. That's, that's fine. But your other giant left-wing people, that the, the ones that Democrats loved the most, that they put the most money into, that were becoming national stars, they all lost. Robert, o Robert O'Rourke in Texas, he outspent Ted Cruz like crazy. And it got you a several-point loss in Texas. Everyone thought Stacey Abrams was going to be a thing in Georgia. Not a thing. It's closer than maybe they, they wanted it, but it was... Republicans are going to win there. And a Democrat maybe could have won in this environment in Georgia. I don't think any Democrat could win in the environment in Texas, but maybe in Georgia. But you put up an insane person. You put up a far, far left person. And where Democrats did that, they got whacked. 
and you deserved it. You deserve that when you put up insane far left wingers. And so that should be their takeaway. If you're if you're if they're worried about winning the presidency in twenty twenty, and they are, if they're worried about winning back the Senate at some point and maintaining that House majority, when you get into nominating contest Democrats, you can't you cannot elect insane people that are way outside the anywhere near the mainstream of America and where they did, they lost, they should take that away as a consequence of this election or interpretation of this election. For Republicans, here's some things that they do need to recognize. Donald Trump won because Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin unexpectedly went to him. If you add up those the votes by which he won in all three states, I think it was around 70,000 votes. That's how really tight the election was. He lost the popular vote, but he won the election solely on that. He won Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin by a total of about 70,000 votes. If those 70,000 votes go any different, then Hillary Clinton would have been would have been president. What he needs to recognize is that in Michigan, there is it Stabenow, I think, the Democrat is Stabenow. She, she beat pretty handily a good Republican candidate. Pennsylvania statewide offices, they went to the Democrats. Again, Wisconsin went to the Democrats. Now, th- this might be a situation where Donald Trump is unique. Barack Obama was that way. When Barack Obama was on the ballot, he activated a bunch of young people. He activated a lot of minorities. He activated people who don't typically vote. And what happened with Donald Trump in those states is he activated disenfranchised people. He activated lower-income white people who didn't typically vote, and they showed up. They showed up in big numbers for him. And maybe those those folks, those, those white people, uh, lower-income white people who showed up for, for Trump just don't like Republicans generally. Again, that happened to Barack Obama. Democrats did terrible in a lot of places where he did well because he activated a certain segment of voters. It's an important thing for you to realize about politics that connects directly back to last week's show. For last week's show, we're not talking about half and half. A situation where half the country is opposed to the other half. I saw that again all over media, uh, social media. People saying, you know, one big takeaway from tonight is we're all so divided. Half the country, you know, is so different than the other, the other half. No, half the voters are different than the other half of the voters. The voters are really divided. There's a ton of people that don't participate. And that's what happens in a lot of elections. It's not that someone won the middle. They won the moderates. They won the independents. They just went out and found some new voters, people who weren't participating. Barack Obama did that. That's what Donald Trump did, too. They just activated different groups of people. So Republicans, if you're thinking about 2020, that's something to worry about in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin. Do you have a situation there where Donald Trump can win them back or not? I'm somewhat indifferent, but I'm just giving you some things that uh, the interpretation of the data from that night should be, well, this was key to our coalition. How do we get back into Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin? Ohio was a weird one. Ohio had a Republican win the governorship, but the Democrat incumbent, I think Rob Portman, kept his, or who, oh, no, Sherrod Brown, that's his name, Sherrod Brown. Uh, Rob Portman's the Republican. Sherrod Brown, Senator Brown from Ohio, kept his seat but the other statewide office, the governorship, went to the Republican. I don't know how to interpret that when two statewide offices go to two different parties. And, and, but that'll be, I mean, Ohio's always a battleground state. Then the other interpretation for, this one is for both. So for Democrats, interpret this as you cannot nominate super left-wing people. It doesn't work. For Republicans, recognize you do have a problem in the Midwest. That is, you're going to have to do something there to win some of those seats back and win back some of those voters to win in 2020. Here is one for both parties. I have said for a long time that 
our biggest divide in America is metropolitan and rural. That we self-organize. And I think that metropolitan areas, big cities, they create liberals, they draw liberals, they draw left-wing and secular people. Rural places draw Republicans, they draw religious people, they draw conservative types. This is just the nature of the conservative and the liberal mind. And so the big cities have always been uh, fair... as culturally diverse as they are, ideologically the cities aren't really all that diverse. You're you're likely to have the same opinion on guns and abortion and religion in the cities. To anyone you meet, and just the way the same way if you go out to the r- rural parts of the country, they're all going to agree on guns and uh, abortion and, and religion. Like it's it's just culturally that's how it's it's really mono. I can't come up with the word monoclastic. Maybe it's but everyone is. Uh, ideologically similar in those areas. And so the suburbs and the exurbs, so suburbs being directly out of the cities, exurbs being just that one step out before you get into the rural areas, that's a lot of times where elections have been won and lost. In Pennsylvania, it's been said for a long time, the election is won and lost in the suburbs that surround Philadelphia. So uh, we know where the western part of the state is going. It's going to Republicans. We know where the giant population center is going in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. That's going to the Democrats. And it's the question, can Republicans pick up enough suburban votes to win in Pennsylvania? What we started to see in these House races is Republicans who have done well in the suburbs. The, the suburbs are where you go after you get married, you start a family, you start to grow up a little bit, you get out of the cities, and so it tends to be you can win these over as conservatives. George W. Bush always did really well in the suburbs. Barack Obama made those folks feel a certain way out there for some reason, and he did better than John McCain and Mitt Romney in the suburbs. Republicans got, got, got in a lot of trouble in the suburbs in those House districts. The cities are always going to be Democrats. The rural areas are always going to be Republican. These suburbs matter. And something about either the Republicans and I think something about Donald Trump is what hurt here. I do think it was him. I mean, just, I don't know. Every woman's going to be different. But imagine for me that there is that 35 to 55, somewhere in that age range. 35 to 55, maybe got kids in the household, maybe some older kids, kids in college, married. Not a real deeply ideological person. Like George W. Bush and like Barack Obama, maybe. What do you do with Donald Trump in that situation? You can make the argument, well, he makes me feel safe because he seems like he really cares about the border stuff and he's, he seems to be really pro-America and the economy's good, so our household budget's great. But then he behaves the way he does and it's really off-putting for those ladies. And that, uh, and by the way, that's that's a thing out in the suburbs. There's a lot of that, that the wild card is how how do the housewives vote? That's how that works in the suburbs and the exurbs. And so it's just something for both parties to, to keep an eye on. What's going to happen there? Can Democrats keep that? Can they nominate a uh, if, if they nominate someone that appeals to that suburb group, they can do really well in 2020. But I tell you this: those suburbs out of, in, in Atlanta and the exurbs, they didn't like uh, that that Democrat candidate for, out there because she was a crazy person. And so that you you do have to you have to grasp onto this idea that the folks that choose to live in a suburb area, they like stability. That's that's their thing. That They like their lives the way they are. They're not looking for radical things. And when you present yourself as a radical, like Stacey Abrams did, that feels unstable. That feels chaotic. And those folks are turned off by the chaos of that. 
All right, so that is the interpretation of what happened. Now it's just a couple consequences of things that are headed our way. Number one, I think we're going to hit total gridlock, and that's probably good. I actually am nervous a little because Donald Trump doesn't believe anything. I am nervous about his willingness to get with Democrats on like a giant infrastructure spending, like just blowing the debt even worse than we already have because he likes that kind of stuff. Democrats like that kind of stuff. Democrats tend to like tariffs the same way Donald Trump likes tariffs. I am nervous that to, quote, get stuff done, he might compromise with them, but maybe the Republican-held Senate clogs it all up. I think we do end up in a situation like we were in in 2011 and 12 where basically nothing happened. There was no major legislation passed. I think we might have hit the sequester then, if you remember that. I think we're just going to hit total gridlock, and that's probably fine. The tax rates are where they need to be. Uh, the president has unilateral power to, to change some things on some tariffs if, if we need to do that. Uh, we have, we're, we're good. Uh, we're actually in a decent spot as a country, as I explained last week. We don't have to panic all the time. So we're going to hit total gridlock, and that's okay. I think we'll be fine with total gridlock. It just becomes a sport. Everyone argues. and I mean, if I hate to blow your minds here, but you know in 20 weeks probably, 20-ish weeks, there will already be Democrats declaring their run for president. I, I'm hoping there's some serious third party for me to consider that, that it will declare, but uh, it was in April. It was in late March and early April in 2015 that the, six, the 2016 candidates started declaring. Rand Paul, I recall, declared April 7th, April 7th, 2015. So we're about 20 weeks away from starting the next election cycle for president. So very little is going to be happening in Congress over these next two years. And I think we should be comforted by that, uh, that they can't mess anything up. So there's going to be gridlock. Um, the Democrats are going to be handing out subpoenas like Oprah, Whipfer, Oprah Winfrey handed out cars on that really famous episode where she was, you know, you get a car, you get a car. Democrats are about to be, you get a subpoena, and you get a subpoena, and you get a subpoena. The Trump organization, maybe Donald Trump's kids, uh, there's going to be subpoenas flying everywhere for tax documents, tax returns, investigations. It is about to be a legal party. We're, we're not doing any legislation, but a lot of investigations coming uh, and subpoenas going everywhere. Uh, then one final, I guess, consequence of this is that we're, we are going to have a 2020 death match from the attitudes uh, exhibited during this election. That's where we are as Americans. It's bad. It's not a good thing, it's, but that's where we are. And so I don't look forward to that meanness, that that environment, but that's what's coming for us. It is going to be, a, it is going to be I think, worse than the Hillary Trump campaign in terms of just just general unpleasantness toward one another. But if you ask me right now, who wins? I don't get any pleasure or displeasure. Maybe some displeasure, I don't know. But I don't carry the way. Like, again, I'm, I'm at that apathetic part where I just... Uh, none of these people represent me. But if you had to ask me to guess, I think Donald Trump wins this thing. Florida, doing what it did, makes me think he can keep it. He only needs Ohio after that. I mean, he, he might even pick up some states he didn't win. So... uh if you're asking me about a 2020 outlook from this, Democrats certainly have a shot. They have no good candidates. They have a map that's favorable. But especially if, if these tariffs don't slow down the economy and this president can, can, can run on, hey, you do have a better retirement situation, you do have more money, and he can keep himself focused and not behave like a buffoon, 
Uh, I don't know if he can do that. Yeah, he's, he's got a route. He's got a route to win. Uh, and then the actual consequence, a very real thing that happened, is Jeff Sessions was fired. He wrote in his resignation, I'm turning in my resignation, at your request, saying he's he's fired. I am, I'll give you that hot take that I, I've already given you once. I'm telling you Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham is the next AG, and then Nikki Haley will be appointed by my governor, Henry McMaster, to be in the Senate. A smart person I know said, nope, Nikki Haley is in the business of making money right now. That's why she wanted out at the UN. It wasn't to be a senator. She's She needs to go make seven figures the next two years, eight figures over the next two years, to pay off a bunch of campaign debts and all kinds of stuff. Like She doesn't want to be in government because it's not enough money. She wants to go to the private sector. I, I don't know. I, I think because she's so clearly going to run for president in 2024 that I think she gets to the Senate uh, and there's plenty of black back scratching going on there to to bring it about. All right, so that is all the consequences of what came down on Tuesday. Should be a good time, everybody. I'm so excited, which is, again, why we should be focusing on personal things, spiritual things, and concerned a lot less than we are with all of this government stuff. When we come back, I do want to play something from Jim Acosta and Donald Trump. They had a little altercation. I'll play that. We'll get to sports, do some more on this edition of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back into the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for sticking with us. We were finished with election talk, but there was the the day after Donald Trump did a, President Trump, did a, a press conference and got into a little thing with Jim Acosta. I want to play the audio for you and make some comments uh, before we start with it. Jim Acosta, really quickly, from CNN. He's the worst. The, the only good thing I could say about Jim Acosta is he's a good model for all of us to use on who to choose as a mate in this way. Find somebody who loves you like Jim Acosta loves Jim Acosta. Jim Acosta's self-aggrandizement and self-love is just pure. He thinks he's the best person in the world, most talented. He thinks he's very important. He's wrong about all of those things. He's not talented, and he's not important. Now, with it being Donald Trump he's arguing with, for me, this is like Voldemort, Harry Potter's nemesis, arguing with... Sauron, so Aragorn's nemesis in Lord of the Rings. Like, it's just two bad people arguing with each other. Now, the president has a better point here, but Jim Acosta behaves egregiously. He is a bad person in this. And I want to play it for you for a little bit a little bit more of it than everyone else is playing for you. And I have some reactions. This is Jim Acosta arguing with Donald Trump, two of the brightest lights in our entire culture, having a big intellectual discussion. Thanks, uh, thanks guys, for giving us this. I think that you demonized immigrants not in this election no, to try to keep them. I want them to come into the country, but they have to come in legally. You know, they have to come in, Jim, through a process. I want it to be a process. And I want people to come in, and we need right. the people. Your you know, campaign, wait, your campaign. Wait, wait. You know why we need the people, don't you? Because we have hundreds of companies moving in. We need the people. Right. But your campaign had an ad showing migrants climbing over walls and well, so on. Well, that's true. It pour, it, but they it, weren't actors. They're not going to be doing they that. They weren't actors. Well, no, it's true. Do you think they were actors? They weren't actors. They didn't come from Hollywood. Right. These, were, these were people. This was an actual. They, they both here have good and bad points. So that ad that the president put out was a bad ad. It was specifically trying to get you to be afraid of people that don't look like you. That was the goal. Be terrified. The brown people are coming to get you. Go vote. It was a bad ad. The president is right that 
but it wasn't a false ad in terms of the footage. Yeah, there's things that these folks as they're coming up, they're not all behaving well. Like there's there's some bad people in there as well, uh, and so they both have a good point. They both have a bad point as well. Here's the rest of the interaction. Happened a few days ago. And, uh, they're hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of miles you know away. That, that's I not an invasion. Should, honestly, uh, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. Right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let me would be ask, much if better. I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question. And that should be enough. Now, Trump was a jerk there at the end. But there is a room of journalists. It's got to be, I, I look, it looks like close to 100 of them. And here's Jim Acosta with the mic in his hand dominating the time. It's, it is rude and inconsiderate to his colleagues to do this. This is what I'm talking about, in that Jim Acosta loves Jim Acosta like any of us could ever desire to be loved. Like he, It's that kind of pure love for himself. He thinks he's the most important person in the room. President, if I may, if I may ask Peter, one other question, are you worried? That's enough. That's Mr. enough. President, I, That's well, a- now, you don't see the video here because this is radio, but a media uh, assistant of the White House comes over and tries to grab the mic. He shrugs her off, like gives her a little elbow. To the extent that, that if that were a girl in my life, I'm, me and Jim and Costa are going to have to talk. You don't, you don't elbow uh, the lady. You get, the, you get that? How that works? You, you moron. And so uh, that's, that's what he does to keep the mic, to monopolize the time as Donald Trump tries to get him to move on. Because believe it or not, Jimmy, you're not the most important person in the world. I'm going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Mr. President, me. that's enough. That pardon me, ma'am, was that same woman. And he won't, he won't let go of the mic. You don't get to be in charge of the room, Jim. You don't get to decide who has the mic or not. This is why this should never happen without someone from the White House being at a soundboard. I will mute you right now. We'll shut this thing down. You don't get to cause chaos. You're not in charge of this room, Jim Acosta. And there should have been someone on that soundboard shutting him down immediately. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question, if I may ask, on, on the Russia investigation. Are you concerned that... That you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, That's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President, are you worried about indictments coming down in this investigation? He is monopolizing all the time. It's rude to everyone around him. <laughs> Mr. President. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. I think that's unfair. You're a very rude person. The way you treat Sarah Huckabee is horrible. And the way you treat other people are horrible. You shouldn't treat people that way. Go ahead. Now, all that he just said, that Donald Trump just said, that is accurate. The president is right. He, the way that Jim Acosta just behaved is wrong. It is morally reprehensible. It was terrible for him to do what he just did. Because, again... You're not the center of the universe. You don't get to be in charge of everything. This is not how this works. You got to ask a question. You got to ask two. You're now in the White House monopolizing a microphone, literally shrugging a girl off, trying to take it from you. It's not your property, sir. Everything president said there the president said there is true. Here's the problem. Lack of moral authority. The fact that Donald Trump lacks moral authority doesn't mean he's wrong. He was right. He was right in what he said about Jim Acosta. But he called him rude and called him a terrible person. The way he treats people is terrible. Do you see where I'm going? This is why it's important to have moral authority. How do you get moral moral authority? You behave. You don't call Ted Cruz's wife ugly. You don't say Ted Cruz's dad killed JFK. You don't give everyone a nickname. Crazy Bernie and Crooked Hillary and who are some of these others. Uh, There was uh, little, Little Marco... 
low energy Jeb. You don't scream and curse at the microphone guy at one of your rallies. You don't say, yeah, rough that guy up, I'll pay for your legal fees. You don't say punch that guy in the face you know, with, the, uh, with some of these protesters during the campaign. The president is right. Jim Acosta behaved badly. Jim Acosta did the wrong thing. The president lacks moral authority to say so because, sir, Mr. President, you're the worst behaved. And so instead of railing on him for the minute we have left before we go to sports, let that just be a lesson for us. If you are going to eviscerate someone else, if you're going to attack someone else for their behavior, the fact that you're a hypocrite doesn't make you wrong. You can be right and a hypocrite at the same time. I try to explain this to people a lot. I can be a hypocritical person, and also the thing I'm saying is correct. That can happen. It's so much more effective when you can say, you know, you really shouldn't do that, this thing at work or in this relationship or whatever the relationship is. You shouldn't do that because I would never do that to you. I have the moral authority here because I would never do that to you. I would never say that to you. I would never behave in the way that you're behaving, and I would ask that you not do that as well. Let's at least take away that lesson from that interaction. We are all all out of time for serious stuff for the week. Share the show everywhere you can, and we're going to move on to sports. As we do, we're going to finish up talking sports with a sports correspondent of our show. His name is Heath Powell. Hello there. Hello. I've got to start with the big game of last weekend. It was the LSU-Alabama showdown. I have one takeaway from it before I get to mine. Did you take anything away from that game of interest? Yes, I did. If you can keep sustained pressure on Tua, he gets nervous and he he, he throws some, some bad balls. He, he rushes. He rushes. Uh, because he hasn't had pressure all year, and we've talked about this. Mm-hmm. LSU couldn't sustain the pressure on him, and every time they got somebody close, they would trip on their own feet. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw that at least three times. Where the guy's got him, and he's he's running right toward him, and he just falls down. Yep. Um, so I think if you can do that, you can pick on their linebackers as well. I don't think their linebackers are strong. Um, you, you can beat Alabama. People talk about Alabama every year as they're invincible, mm-hmm. and they're just not. Well, this reminded me of whatever Rocky movie it was. That uh, Rocky Four. I think it is. He's ble- he, he's bleeding. Like you, you made him bleed. Oh, that's Rocky One, Two, Three, Four, Five. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, there was that scene where it's it's supposed to be the unbeatable. The opponent. Russian. Yeah, that's Rocky Four. But, but, oh, Rocky Four. Yeah. I tell you, if you're a Clemson fan or you're a fan of any other program, LSU made him bleed. Yeah. Because I thought you can slow them down. Yeah. Because I tell you this, I think Clemson can score more than. Tw- more than 29 on them. Clemson can outscore Alabama, and Clemson's defense is better than Alabama's. Yes, I said it because I think it's true. It's true this year. Absolutely. Yep. And so I actually wondered if anyone could touch them. I was there with Alabama. Yep. No one's touching them. And then I saw that game and went, they are beatable. They can be outscored. Because not only from Clemson's defensive line to their linebackers, once the starters are winded, they roll in a whole new set and they're fresh the entire game. That was LSU, LSU couldn't sustain it. Yes, their their starters are awesome, but once they're out, there's a a very large drop off to the next guy. The first three possessions for Alabama were punt, field goal, punt. Right. It was near the end of the game. LSU's great players were winded. Attrition got LSU. If you have a deep defense. You can beat Alabama. Not only a deep defense, but an offense that can outscore Alabama yeah. into a... And LSU's offense is horrendous. Yeah, it's bad. They're not even average. They're a bad offense. Right. And LSU's defense is not near as talented as Clemson's is. Uh, no, look, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Alabama's horrible. Tua is a fantastic quarterback. He's one he of is. my favorite guys to watch. Yep. 
But if you keep pressure in his face consistently through the game, you have a deep defense, you have an offense that can score, it's the perfect storm for Alabama. So I'm now where you, I think, have already been. I went – I have been thinking Alabama is genuinely untouchable. Clemson would lose by 20. Yep. They're, they are a beatable team. Yep. And I actually, if you had to pick if I had to pick today, I'd pick Clemson. Yeah, I'd pick Clemson as well. And I'm surprised at myself for that. Very surprised <laughs> that I would do that. But after watching that game, LSU proved to me Alabama is beatable. Yep. Um, so now that it's also set uh, because Georgia beat Kentucky, it's Georgia-Alabama again in the SEC championship game. You expect Bama by more than 10? I think it'll be fairly close. Okay. Just because uh, Georgia's offense is a lot better than LSU's. True. Uh, now, I think there's more talent on LSU's defense than there's on Georgia. Um, but I think it'll be – yeah, it's probably it's probably Alabama by 10 or 13, something like that. Yeah, pull away late type right. situation. Uh, so then the other one I – Now, that all depends on the health of Tua. Of he's course. got the bum knee. He's You know, he's got all these – Jalen Hurts has just mm-hmm. got him off surgery. Right. So, that, it all depends on that. It all hinges on Tua. It caveats for every team in that way. Right. Where – assuming everyone's healthy. Right. Because you lose very key people. We can rehash for a moment. Uh, Michigan did beat up on Miss, uh, Penn State pretty good. Yep. Do you? I consider the, it to be Alabama, Clemson, giant drop off, and then Notre Dame, Michigan. Do you put Michigan somewhere above the giant drop off? No, no, I don't. I don't either. I don't. Um, in, in the, I think Notre Dame is good, and they've beat a couple of really good teams. But to me, towards the end of the year. They don't have to play the conference championship. They sit at home eating popcorn watching all these guys destroy themselves, <laughs> right. and then they, they get to play one of those guys who wins. Yep. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I think you need to get in the conference, or you're a you're not a Power 5 team. Yeah. Go, you're, join the – I would say Big Ten for them because they're in Indiana. Right. But, yeah, they need to do that. I yeah, I fair. think so. Then the uh, – I do want to quickly go back over the Clemson-Louisville game, but really want to preview more of that Boston College game. Uh, so, 77 points – 77 points on 56 plays. Ten different guys score a touchdown. That's insane. 500 yards on the ground. Three 100-yard rushers. You know what makes – we talked about last Come week. Come on, man. It's insane. <laughs> I mean, I didn't watch it. I just kept – I thought I saw the score and thought it was wrong. Right. Someone must have input the numbers wrong. No, it was 14 to nothing within the first, like, two and a half minutes. It was five plays. Yeah, it was nuts. Five offensive plays and they scored 14 points. The, the thing we talked about last week with Florida State quitting – Louisville quit as well. I think you've had some coaches saying it. I'm starting to wonder if it's not the bad character of other teams or if Clemson just crushes your spirit. <laughs> no, I think Clemson is just robbing people's souls. I think so. And they want to go home. Yeah, after the first <laughs> quarter. it's I don't want to play anymore. Yeah, it's like, okay, this game is over. Why are we still here? It almost makes Somebody me, throw the white towel out there and let's yeah, go home. Yeah, It makes me like want to take back some things I said about Florida State guys. Like, you know what? Everyone's quitting. Yeah, and it's not just that the number ones for Clemson are coming out and smashing you in the mouth, and then the number ones on defense are coming out and hammering you. They're just rolling. I mean, they play, what, 92 guys? Yeah. I mean, Will Sweeney got his first touchdown. It was awesome. Well, consider the situation if you are a DB. You're the start. You're a great DB for, for Louisville. Yeah. And you, you ran five routes in a row, but the, it was a new guy each time. So yeah. you're sprinting up the sideline, but a new guy rolls in. Yeah, first down you're covering – Let's call their number one DB. Yeah. You're covering T. Higgins. Mm-hmm. First down play. Okay, he's out. Who runs in? Justin Ross runs in. Exactly. Third down. Overton runs in. Then you got to cover Amari Rogers. Then you got to try to handle yeah. Renfro. Then Travion Thompson runs out there. I you, mean, what are you doing? You're playing 90 snaps. 90 snaps snaps. They're playing 30. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So their heart rate's never even elevated. Yeah. And you're yeah. winded. They're not even sweating yet. Yeah. And you're about to pass out. That's what I'm talking about with the. Uh, yeah. the 
this attrition, it's just, I, I don't want to anymore. This is not yeah. even fun. And football stops being fun. That would not be, that would be zero fun. So now preview. So that's my, I have no other thoughts on that Louisville game, but just. I don't either. It's just. Wow. The stat line is ridiculous. It was, they were incredible. Oh, and Trevor Lawrence had 59 pass yards and two touchdowns. He didn't do anything. He threw eight passes. <laughs> and scored twice. <laughs> scored on twice. Uh, Chase Price actually was. He yeah, Chase more. Price had over 100 yards. Yeah. I mean, his pass down the sideline to Ross was. Incredible. Oh, man, it was, on, it was awesome. I'm yeah. glad for him. The big game, I think the last big game for Clemson this year until you get the postseason. Yep. Is this week, uh, 8 o'clock, unfortunately, uh, primetime, ABC, Boston College. Yep. Am I right when I say if uh, an ACC that has a good Boston College, that's a much more fun ACC? It is. It I, is more fun. I want them to be good. Yeah, I like when Boston College is good. That, uh, they're not good enough to be Clemson. They're not. But it is better when they're good. I think they're good enough to be competitive for a half. Yeah. But that's about all. Yeah, I think it's it's not going to be 77-16. I, th- I still think it's going to be 35-42 to 10-ish, 13-ish type game. Something like that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I can see going into the half. They just don't have the weapons. On offense. But I love the way Boston College plays. They take on the idea of their coach. They're gritty. They're tough. I love the – I really like Boston College. I mean, that, is it Narduzzi? Is that his name? Yeah. I can't – yeah. I love his demeanor. Yeah. And that, that team is hard. Yeah. They play rough. I love those kinds of teams. Yeah, I like the blue-collarish, grinded-out, gritty-type guys. I like those guys. Those, those are more fun to watch. But, yeah, we're on the same page. Clemson's going to beat that, yep. that team. And we're, we're now running out of key matchups for uh, playoff implications. Right. Michigan only has one more. It's Ohio State. Yep. And Ohio State's horrible. They're not playing well right now. Nebraska they, had them beaten. Yeah, Nebraska's a two-win team. Nebraska's a two-win team. Yeah. And it, Ohio State wins 36-31. So, and, you tell me. And probably shouldn't have won. They should not have won the game. I saw that synopsis at the end there. How does a kicker – did you see this? I did. Whiff on the ball? On the kickoff. And then fall down? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what – I. You know do. I don't like kickers anyway. Yeah. I just don't. But good grief. At least hit the ball. Contact the ball. That's the only reason you're on the team. This is a you had one job. Put your boot on the ball. Yeah. You had one job, man. You had one job. Just kick it. Okay, so that's the Boston College game coming up this week, and we reviewed. We'll be back, I guess, next week with that result, and uh, the playoff implications are, are coming up on us here soon. Uh, so thanks for coming in and talking sports. I appreciate we'll it. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.